The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Good afternoon or good morning. I'm Quentin Fottrell, the Managing Editor for Personal Finance at MarketWatch. Together here with me today, I have Emma Ockerman, a reporter for MarketWatch, and also Adam Perdue who is a research economist at Texas A&M University's Real Estate Research Center. Um, hi, Emma. Hi, Adam. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Hello. My, Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So we called the event today um, the New Housing Crisis, and we're going to explain why, and we're going to take questions from viewers. But... Look, there, there is a crisis for millions of Americans, uh, you know, who want to buy a home. And that, as you may be or may not be aware, is uh, uh, an affordability crisis and also a supply crisis. There, um, there's a, a real shortage of homes um, being built and available for, for sale at the moment. Um, but you know what? Let's start with the good news for a change. Um, although there was a slight increase in foreclosures after the pandemic-related moratoria on rents and mortgage payments wound down, um, foreclosures overall remain low. And that's one big um, important difference between today and what we experienced before the 2008 um housing crisis and crash as it was then. Um, the New York Fed says, says that 68% of newly originated mortgage debt in the first quarter of 2021 went to borrowers with credit scores over 760. So that was, you know, during the um, the real peak, the, uh, you know, among one of the peaks of the great house buying frenzy that happened during the pandemic. Uh, subprime mortgages remain effectively non-existent. That's what Fed researchers said. So now I'm moving to the big however. However, total housing inventory nationwide at the end of March was, was down 9.5% at something like 950,000 units from a year ago when it stood at over 1 million. So while, while, while there may not be a housing bubble like there was in 2008, and I know that's already one question that somebody has. Supply issues are putting pressure on buyers, particularly first-time buyers. At least one analyst has said that buyers are, quote, scraping the bottom of the barrel. Um, on Wednesday, uh, construction of new houses fell slightly in April for the second month in a row. And that suggests that rising mortgage rates, record home prices, and the high cost of building materials are all starting to take effect. And that affects supply and it affects the amount of money, of course, you're going to pay for a home. So this lack of supply can be seen in the latest Fed data as well. Mortgage balances on consumer debt credit reports increased by $250 billion to $11.1 trillion during the first quarter of the year. Um, 
So the Fed said mortgage originations declined from historically high volume seen in 2021. And that also reflects an unwinding in the demand for refinancing. Uh, fewer people are refinancing. Fewer homeowners may be looking to sell, um, especially if they can't find a suitable replacement home. So for those who are making lateral moves um, it, or, or downsizing, it, it, might, it may be easier. So... Um, I wanted to um, come first of all to um, Emma, uh, our reporter here at Market Watch. Um, the pandemic boom in home sales is over, seems. Mortgage rates have soared to the highest level since 2009 as the Fed um, pressures the housing, puts pressure on the housing market with its rate hikes. Um, the last time mortgage rates, Emma, were this high, um, Barack Obama was just months into his first term as president, and we were in the depths of the Great uh, Recession. Um, so on Monday, the White House released a plan to tackle the nation's housing shortage, Emma. So what exactly did that say? Right. So the Biden administration basically recognizing that by some estimates we're short millions of homes necessary to meet demand in, for one part wants to incentivize cities to peel back exclusionary zoning rules. So these are sort of the uh, baked in laws that can make it incredibly difficult to conduct uh, construction across the country. The idea here being pretty simple that if you increase construction, you increase supply and over time you lower prices. So for one, jurisdictions that have already reformed zoning to either favor density or rural Main Street revitalization, they get higher scores when applying for grants for funding from last year's infrastructure bill, basically meaning they leave money on the table if they leave uh, really restrictive zoning laws in place. The White House also wants to incentivize the construction of what some may consider non-traditional forms of housing, but can also be uh, cheaper and quicker to construct, that being manufactured housing, accessory dwelling units, um, which some folks call granny flats. Uh, specifically, the Biden administration said it was interested in addressing the lack of attractive, low-cost financing options for these kind of housing, these kind of this sort of housing structure. Um, and that's really interesting to some advocates who had particularly pointed out that this entrance into manufactured housing and expression of interest in manufactured housing is sort of new and very appealing. Um, that being said, there is a lot of this that hinges on congressional funding. That is also something that affordable housing advocates were quick to point out um, that could kind of stymie the Biden administration's efforts. There was 170 billion in Build Back Better, the stalled legislation uh, to address affordable housing, which was something that advocates and progressive Democrats were really excited about. That's sort of been off the table ever since Senator Joe Manchin withdrew his support for Build Back Better in December. Right. Um, the National Association of Realtors said that U.S. homeownership, home ownership rate has um, uh, surged, um, you know, during the pandemic. Um, but it says that the home ownership rate for Black Americans is somewhere around 43%, Emma, versus 72% for white Americans and 62% almost for Asian Americans and Hispanic Americans. So is this the gap the White House is attempting to bridge with this announcement that came out on, on Monday? 
Sure. I mean, anything to address housing affordability and put home ownership more in reach for regular Americans could effectively be considered a racial justice measure. But it's important to note that when we're talking about the racial home ownership gap, we are talking about a mammoth, monumental problem. And with the Biden administration's plan, we're sort of talking about incremental, albeit important changes. So with the National Realtors Association of Realtors data, um, it's important to note that Black homeownership is actually slightly lower than it was a decade ago. Even the white Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, they've all seen homeownership reach new highs in the past decade. Um, the NAR's analysis also noted that half of homes listed for sale are affordable to people making about $100,000 a year. Uh, that's a threshold that about 35% of white Americans meet, but only 20% of Black Americans meet. So there's a fundamental affordability problem there that while it can be addressed by and will be addressed by increasing uh, availability of homes, we're talking about something far more structural here. Um, it's also worth talking about the fact that with rents increasing, um, Black Americans are more likely to spend more than half of their incomes on rent already. That means that they're able to save less for a down payment. So when we're talking about addressing the racial housing or homeownership gap, um, oftentimes we're talking about addressing not just availability or supply of homes, but far more structural issues like limiting debt burden on Black households, closing income gaps, peeling back restrictive zoning laws, and addressing discrimination in the home buying process itself. Right. Adam, uh, Freddie Mac has said that the U.S. housing market is 3.8 million single-family homes short of what is needed to meet the country's demand. It's a lot of homes. What, what are the short and long-term headwinds that face buyers? Now we know there's a the supply crisis, but what other, what other challenges are buyers facing right now? All right, so I mean, we've already brought up this long-term kind of question a couple of times here, and, and, and that is this 3.8 million home shortage is also kind of a 3.8 million home shortage, specifically where people want to live, which is in our growing and wealthier uh, metropolitan areas. And, and as him has already said a couple of times, a lot of this is uh, based on zoning. Um, and so over this long term, right, there are limitations on the housing uh, that is allowed to build. We have increased housing unaffordability in general by specifically targeting the ability of people to build affordable housing. We, we uh, across the country, all of our major metropolitan areas, well, this, this is a municipal level problem, but all of our municipal uh, local governments, uh, they restrict uh, the building, uh, they, they require that you have excess lot sizes, they require that you have excess parking, uh, they require setbacks, uh, they limit your ability to um, uh, build more housing on, on a given amount of land. And that's this long-term issue has prevented people from being able to move where they want and, and what it, uh, more housing in more locations in metropolitan areas uh, that we see have increasing productivity and increasing income. Um, and so this is the, that kind of long-term situation uh, that Freddie Mac uh, is kind of referencing with the 3.8 million. A lot of what we're talking about today, though, is just a short-term uh, situation that is just compounded upon that. Uh, what we've seen during this uh, COVID era here is a massive increase in uh, housing demand. Census, uh, the census has re just reported uh, 
uh, vacancy rates have fallen significantly. This is people responding both to COVID and not necessarily wanting to live with as many people or as many people in a small space and deciding that instead of having a roommate and living in a two bedroom, both of those guys are going to go uh, to two separate one bedrooms. Or, but since we're working from home, both of those people might be moving out into two separate two bedrooms so that you can have your work from home office. Or we had couples um, who are maybe wanting more space for single family homes uh, to get separation from everybody else in their apartment complexes. So we've seen this demand that is kind of a confluence of COVID and uh, work from home has increased there and then supply has been limited because our builders have been facing the same kind of shortfalls, uh, supply constraints that you've heard about in the rest of the economy. Uh, they've been facing that kind of thing. So while they permitted and started uh, significantly more houses in response to these increases in demand, they just haven't been able to see the completion rate go up in the same kind of proportion. Then plus, right, prices have increased over the last two years because the Fed kind of, you can think of it as a uh, gifted uh, people who managed to keep their jobs, right, which again is the systematic issues that Inman was talking about. Those people that have been relatively well off, right, are also relatively capable of working from home, so they kept their jobs. And then they were gifted with an extra 17% purchasing power by the cuts in the rates by the Fed. And so we've seen prices increase. And now if you weren't able to capture that over the last two years, we are facing both those higher prices and um, rates are now reversing and are up to 5.3%. Um, and so then now, if you're trying to get into the market today, we have this higher prices, uh, we have uh, higher rates on your mortgage rates, and it's really constraining uh, people's ability to enter in the market uh, today. Right. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Adam. Uh, I wanted to also remind the audience to submit questions, but we already have quite a few. And I wanted to just quickly uh, turn to one. We have a question here from Morgan who asks, what percentage of housing purchases are private equity rental investments? Um, well, we do know that you know, there, this has been on the increase. Real estate investors, uh, according to uh, real estate brokerage Redfin, bought a record of 18.4% of the homes that were sold in the U.S. during the fourth quarter of last year, Morgan. So that's up from 12.6% a year earlier and a revised rate of 17.4% in the third quarter. So 18.4%, you know, that's a, that's a, you know, a lot of um, uh, presumably homes that are being flipped or rented out. I mean, that's, that's obviously pushing, you know, people, uh, you know, consumer, consumers um, out of the, the, the market. Um, uh, Morgan also asks what percentage of homes are second homes for people. Uh, you may not be surprised to know, Morgan, that the share of second homes soared by over 80%, according to some estimates during the pandemic, as people sought to flee cities and work remotely. Second home transactions averaged uh, a 3.8% quarterly market share of all mortgage rate locks. Um, according to the PACASO Second Home Market Report, um, but that um, that was you know over the last couple of years that 3.8% quarterly market share, but that increased to 4.3% market share last summer. So again, more people buying second homes to cut your uh, to 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 cut a, a long story short. Um, so Morgan also asks what share of homes were all cash buyers 
Another good question. Uh, nearly one third of US home purchases were paid for with all cash Redfin found. That seems like an awful lot of homes uh, up from 25% during all of 2020. And that's the largest share since 2014, uh, when third, over 30% of homes were purchased with all cash. That seems like an awful lot of homes. Um, uh, but that shows, if, if, if accurate, that shows the kind of competition out there for, for house hunters, right? If you're buying, bidding on a house and the other uh, fellow has, is an all cash buyer and I'm the seller, I'm thinking, you know, this guy's mortgage uh, approval might not go through. It's a safer bet. It's a really tough. It's really tough to bid against an all cash buyer. Um, uh, and as I said, like remote work has obviously paid a big part in the housing um, increase. Um, you know, many fortunate people, not everybody in actually a smaller percentage than you might uh, care to think, uh, judging by the news media. But some people have been fortunate enough to have the freedom to live wherever they choose during the pandemic. And economists at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and the University of California, San Diego, this, just this week released a paper that showed that the shift to remote work explains, wait for this, over one half of the nearly 24% national house price increase between 2019 and November, 2021. So that remote work shift has really had an enormous impact on uh, house prices. Um, they concluded that our results imply a fundamentals-based explanation for the recent increases in housing costs over speculation or financial factors, and that the evolution of remote work is likely to have large effects on the future path of house prices and inflation. Look, if people go back to the office, if there is a return to normal over the next two years, expect to see some of those increases in those markets, the secondary markets, um, uh, you know, places where people have moved out to in the suburbs of New York and Florida and other secondary markets. Um, expect to see um, uh, some some kind of reversal. I, I would imagine if there is, but of course, there's also a lot of people who are resisting going back to the office. Those again, who have been lucky enough to be able to do that for, uh, during the pandemic. There are many, many people in the services industry, particularly who have not got that luxury. Always worth noting. Emma, what's happening with renters two years into the pandemic? Um, we have a question, another question from a reader here, Joseph, who asks, what's the impact of these trends on the rental market? Uh, renters in big metropolitan areas initially some of them anyway benefited from the exodus from the big cities, but that migration didn't affect everybody equally, right? Right. I mean, to put it scientifically, uh, the rental market is bananas right now. So essentially, you uh, might be being punished if you live in one of the more beautiful pockets of America. Um, we see or we have seen really high rent increases in places like Ketchum and Idaho's Sun Valley, uh, um, parts of Florida. Um, also Lake Tahoe. And one impact that this is having is it's essentially making it more difficult for the workforces there that sort of keep the towns running, um, that being you know, the paramedics, your law enforcement officers, your nurses. These are people who might find it more difficult to live in these communities that are seeing a sudden huge bump in population. So I know that that's something that folks are really concerned about and trying to focus on. Um, as far as run across the country, 
uh, investors have been really keen on uh, pouring cash into, again, those really beautiful places in the Sun Belt. So we're seeing rent increases in Phoenix, um, Albuquerque, Austin, Texas, um, and also some really high increases in places like Miami. Um, the logic here is fairly simple. Investors might be seeing, you know, that people are moving into these places, that they could experience a huge population increase, and there's a lot of money to be made. Uh, the sort of real impact that that has on the ground is that, uh, at least according to Redfin, um, in March, rents were up, I think, 17% year over year. Um, and while that might not sound like a gigantic increase, just a reminder, you know, that translates to nearly $300 a month increase for the families that are caught in the middle of this crisis. That is going to have a particularly hard impact on low to moderate income folks who might not have a lot of money to share. And going back to, you know, uh, both of your points on people, you know, potentially having difficulty buying homes too, it's important to remember that people who might have bought homes in a West Bananas market um, are staying renters, which means that there's a greater demand for rentals as well. Right. Um, thanks. Thanks so much, Emma. I think, you know, that also speaks to the uh, the rental market and the investors, people buying second homes, perhaps to rent out, perhaps to live in. Um, there's a connection between all of those all of those trends, um, back, circling back to Morgan's question. But um, we have a question here, Emma, from Ryan, slightly uh, different. How much of a role has the buy, has the build to rent industry had on the accessibility and affordability of housing for millennials and Gen Z? Are there any political headwinds yet for the institutional build to rent and single family rental asset holders? Yeah, so this is a great question, but like most things, it sort of depends on who you ask. So of course, build to rents are trending upward and creating opportunities for people who might not traditionally expect to become homeowners, uh, especially in this housing market, that being, you know, in large part, millennial uh, homeowners or potential millennial homeowners and uh, Gen Z renters. Um, and of course, you know, some real estate developers say that this will lower costs because in part it increases availability, which is a good thing. Um, but it's also important to note that build to rent is still a relatively small share of new construction, even though it's a really hot part of the market right now. And I think the concerns about political headwinds are valid. Um, of course, you know, given the level of evictions that we saw from some Wall Street firms in the pandemic and the skepticism around firms that jumped into properties for rent post 2008, um, we saw some politicians, you know, sort of drawing more attention uh, to this specific kind of investor. And it's also important to note, too, that with the uh, Biden administration's plan that we talked about uh, that was announced on Monday, there was a specific call out there about trying to push properties where possible um, into the hands of uh, typical homeowners rather than institutional investors. Um, and with that kind of language coming out from the feds, it's uh, sort of easy to imagine a world in which there's a little bit more skepticism toward institutional investors. And I think another part of this that can be complicated as well is with build to rent, you know, there's sort of a baked in expectation there that you are accepting a world where fewer people have the opportunity to own. Um, and for some people, that's totally reasonable. Uh, owning a home might not be the most economical option. 
particularly in cities where homeownership is becoming far too expensive. But that's not always the most politically popular thing to say as well, um, that fewer people can expect to become homeowners in the future, especially when homeownership is one of the number one wealth builders in America. You do have to ask, uh, where is the replacement wealth creation going to come from for those folks? Right. And, you know, as you say, Emma, some housing markets are hot, particularly places like California, places in Florida. And you might have read uh, about a three bedroom, two bathroom, mid-century modern home in El Cerrito, California, um, which was built in 1963 and listed at 1.25 million. This just shows you how crazy the housing market is at the moment. It sold for 2.45 million, $1 million over the asking price. The, the realtor said it was a particularly sought after property because it was mid-century and it had the wraparound decks and et cetera. But um, that's, that those kinds of of um, stories are are both amazing and alarming. Uh, MarketWatch uh, recently analyzed more than five years of monthly housing inventory data and created an actually an interactive tool where uh, anybody who's listening today or watching this this on the video can search by county for the change in homes available for sale. So the reporters, the Market Watch reporters in that piece, Katie Mariner, um, Eleanor Lace, and Jacob Capassi said El Paso, Texas, was one city that has seen a remarkable in inventory crunch. Um, uh, but uh, the Market uh, Watch analysis, which focused mostly on larger real estate markets, found the biggest drops in housing listings over the last five years were were. Raleigh, North Carolina, Las Vegas, and of the 20 cities that have seen um, the number of homes available for, for sale um, plunge the most since 2017, nine of those 20 are located in, guess what state? Florida. So um, that, that's a really in interesting interactive tool. And I, I, uh, I, I would argue that it also points to that um, supply crisis that we're having right now in the housing market. Adam, in an earlier conversation I had with you, you mentioned that some secondary markets were among the hottest right now. What what are you seeing? I mean, besides the ones you've already mentioned, right? The people like to talk about Boise, Idaho, like the Idaho, uh, Emma mentioned a couple in Idaho, right? Where we presume uh, people are going for, uh, you know, the natural beauty of the of the, of the Western mountain uh, regions and, um, we see a lot of talk lately about Austin, Texas, um, and it really, when you look across, when you look across a lot of these secondary markets, it's uh, very idiosyncratic. We're seeing growth, by and large, across the whole country, and its hot markets are, are just pop up everywhere, and month to month, it's changing, um, and and we we can talk about a lot of different reasons why we're seeing that. There's a movement to the suburbs, which actually is kind of persistent, uh, just because of the way cities grow. The suburbs are always going to grow faster. We had that kind of trend pretty much always. It was reinforced a little bit by COVID. Uh, movement to Texas and Florida and all of the municipalities around, so here in uh, Texas, all our municipalities around our major metros, including Austin and San Antonio, Dallas, Fort Worth and Houston, and up and down, just Florida in general. Uh, but, you know, Texas and Florida, uh, Florida tech actually typically beats us on net in migration, uh, you know, year to year, but Texas every now and then hits the number one. And that's just a long-term trend that's been reinforced again. And there's secondary markets all across that, uh, Texas and Florida, that pop up on the fastest growing list. 
Um, you know, and then uh, uh, there's kind of a blood sport here. We like to call seven degrees from California um, here in Texas and, you know, west of the Great Plains. Uh, we hear a lot of it too. Uh, you know, California has been an out migration state for quite a while as the housing pressures can uh, continue to push people and unaffordability out of California. And so then that's a lot of what the talk is uh, out of California, up up and down, you know, well, only up left to go there, Portland, Oregon, Seattle, uh, and some of the secondary cities in uh, Washington and Oregon, and in the mountain states, uh, right, Las Vegas, um, as Californians uh, move out of uh, California. And again, that's a long-term trend that's just kind of been um, reinforced. And we're seeing this secondary markets and all of those different types of situations are just keep on popping up as uh, some of the fastest uh, price appreciation, population growth, um, all these other uh, kind of issues that we've seen with the housing uh, market right now. Right. And as you say, uh, the houses are still seeing a lot of pricing pressure, which might explain at least partly that that bizarre San Francisco unicorn that sold a million dollars over the asking price. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, some housing markets are more stable than others. You know, New York City homes, mm -hmm. for the most part, caveat, uh, tend to hold their prices, sort of a market onto its own. Uh, places like Palm Springs, where I am now, has a somewhat more volatile housing market. Um, so um, obviously many people moved here from the LA during the pandemic. Um, driving up house prices, um, but um, you know, not, obviously not all secondary housing markets are, are going to hold their value over time as we, um, you know, see how the world changes again as we come out of the pandemic. Uh, but um, a recent poll, I found this interesting from Gallup, um, found that only 30% of Americans believe now is a good time to buy a house. It's the lowest level on record since Gallup began surveying Americans on this question beginning in 1978. And it's the first time less than 50% of people across the country thought it was a good time to buy and achieve that, that um, part of the American dream. Um, but put another way, even, even at the height of the foreclosure crisis amid the Great Recession, at least 50% of Americans still thought it was right to purchase a home. But today, with home prices and mortgage rates raising, people are growing more concerned about taking the plunge. Um, so that speaks again to a sort of a, as the title of this um, uh, event, you know, the, the new housing crisis that is one of supply um, as well. And that brings me to another question from Daniel, who asks, is it a good time to buy now before prices keep escalating um, or waiting for prices to drop. David, another audience um, member, asks, given the economic, health, and political turbulence we are currently experiencing, would you purchase a home right now, or would you wait until next year? So it's more than one person has asked the same question. The Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas um, recently warned of signs of a brewing, quote, this is a quote, brewing U.S. housing bubble, unquote. And, and that... Um, they said that in March, it cited shifts in disposable income, the cost of credit, and access to it, supply disruptions, rising labor and raw construction material costs, of course, um, are also among the economic reasons for the, the uh, real house price gains, right? Um, 
uh, analysts' predictions, uh, David, um, uh, vary. Um, and uh, there's no real consensus that there was going to be a sudden severe drop. Um, Adam, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. But supply, obviously, issues remain an issue. Gen Z, millennial, millennials want to buy homes. Um, and as I said earlier, we don't have the subprime mortgage crisis looming like we did in 2008. But we still, caveat, have rumblings of a recession next year or 2024. Another caveat, we don't know how severe or, or how prolonged such a recession might be. Recessions can be very different. Um, and we still, of course, have that global uncertainty with the war in Ukraine and the uh, affordability problems as the rate as the rates keep going up or have gone up to, to date. Um, so, but for what it's worth, um, Zillow last month released a revised forecast, forecast for house prices, predicting they will rise uh, nearly 15% um, between March 2022 and March 2023, and that's down from uh, a prediction of 17.8% it made in April. So. House prices looks like they're still going up um, significantly. Adam, do you have a, an opinion on that? Yeah. Uh, well, so here at the center, um, we are forecast we're forecasting a little bit more of a uh, fall in the gross rates than uh, than we're reporting here for Zillow. Uh, but but we're still thinking it's going to be like price appreciation is still going to be positive, uh, just significantly lower. Uh, than it has been. I mean, just because of like what we talked about, the, the reversal of mortgage rates going back up to 5.3%. Um, and uh, But, you know, uh, one difference, you mentioned 2008 in one of the questions, right? And uh, Emma likes to talk about rent a lot. And that's really the right, that's really the right way to take the look at it. And that's the big difference between now and 2008. Uh, in 2008, rents were relatively flat and uh, were not providing any kind of support uh, to the price increases that we saw in 2008, and then uh, and and rates were also flat, and so that was definitely a, a game of hoping that there was going to be somebody else, just crossing your fingers and hoping there was going to be somebody else later on, a year or two later, who was going to buy it for a higher price. Uh, this time, right, we we're, we're seeing these demand pressures are increasing rents, which support house prices. Uh, we had the um, rates that were lower, which is a big cause of the. Uh, um, increase in prices, right? Your, your rental, your rental purchase price uh, is really your rental versus your monthly cost to own of your mortgage, and so those have actually stayed relatively equivalent for people who have bought. And so now the real, the real concern is now as mortgage rates have increased so much, right? That that's kind of the pricing pressure, but we're still seeing rents increase, and so that's still putting upward pressure on the prices. Um, and so I mean, it's just. Uh, so we're thinking over the long, and we still have a, that back that bulk of uh, uncompleted houses that are waiting to come onto the market. And so we, what we really think here at the center um, is that we'll see a, a more significant um, decline in the rate of appreciation. But no, it's still a rate of appreciation. We're we're, we're not calling for uh, falling prices. We didn't, you know, like uh, um, we didn't see significant falls in prices. I mean, we just don't ever really see that uh, and persistent uh, falls in prices. We see that recovery over five years or so. Um, and and, um, and this time, right, everybody's got uh, had good rates that I already own. Rents are still supportive of prices. And the, the big thing 
is um, uh, the mortgage rates coming up um, and uh, the, the supply that we're just hoping that the builders will eventually be able to finish. Right. So Daniel and David, the people who asked this question, if you're thinking of buying a home, I hope that gives you more clarity. It looks like prices are still going to increase, um, uh, though maybe not at the the levels that we have seen um, over the last two years. Uh, so, Emma, what advice do you have for the first time buyers, obviously facing a lot of challenges at the moment? Yeah, I mean, not to be a, a total bummer, but I suppose that's in part the point of this conversation, um, but prepare to face disappointment on some level. Um, I mean, Quentin, you mentioned this, but uh, a lot of people right now who are entering the market for the first time, they're going to be staring down uh, really deep pocketed out of state investors, and that's not really going away anytime soon. Um, and it's important to note because, and Quentin, you mentioned this as well, um, people and investors are going to have the ability to overpay. That doesn't mean that the uh, typical home buyer who's entering the market for the first time should uh, be ready to overpay or willing to overpay by, you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, that being said, uh, when talking about silver linings, uh, because the political environment that we're in right now, it's not that policymakers don't recognize what's going on with the housing market. Do look into incentives that are available for first-time homebuyers in your state. They exist. Um, my home state of Michigan, I saw just opened up uh, $10,000 in down payment assistance, depending on what zip code you live in. So, you know, do your research, you might be surprised at what sort of uh, assistance programs are available for you in your city or state. Right, thanks Emma. We have, we're coming to very close to the close now. We have a lot of questions about, about should I pay above the market uh, for the asking price if I'm gonna live in the house for more than five years. I think our, store, our conversation about rising prices um, answers that. Um, we have a lot of questions that are uh, variations on that theme. Um, I wanted to um, also uh, say, talk to Emma, you, evictions are, are also on the rise in some markets, right? We can't forget that. Yeah, sort of the canary in the coal mine, right, for uh, rising homelessness or the potential for rising homelessness across the country. Um, according to the eviction lab at Princeton University, which has been doing a fantastic job of tracking filings across the country, um, filings, which is, you know, evictions that are taken to court, not necessarily evictions that are carried out, um, are starting to reach or surpass pre-pandemic levels in some cities across the country. Um, we're seeing evictions starting to rise in places like Travis County. Uh, that's where Austin is based. Uh, we're also seeing a rise in Denton County where Fort Worth is based. Of course, you know, this is somewhat skewed toward the markets that have uh, been doing evictions for some time during the pandemic. But what's concerning right now is that we're at the point of the pandemic where rental assistance isn't as readily available. Federal With federal rental assistance probably going to be tapped out this summer. Uh, eviction protections aren't as much in place. So while the eviction tsunami that was uh, forecasted earlier in the pandemic didn't really come to fruition, that doesn't mean it's never coming at all. Um, there are some folks who are very concerned that what we're going to see um, in these next few months is an increase in evictions in cities. It's important to note uh, too that that has long-term ramifications. It's not a one and done type deal. Uh, once folks are evicted, that can stay on the rental record for seven years and make landlords less willing to rent to them. It's interesting to consider how many of these undesirable tenants are going to start to crop up and where they're going to go 
upon being evicted. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Emma. I think we're sort of running out of time. We have so many questions that we could not get to. So um, I'm sorry if we didn't answer your question. Um, but I wanted to thank you both, um, Emma Ackerman, Adam Perdue, for joining me here today. And thank you to the audience for tuning in. Um, uh, turn, turn over to Market Watch as well for our real estate coverage. And uh, you may also um, uh, um, find answers there. Team in DC and various parts of the country might be able to answer your questions um, if you if you take a look at the site and please join us tomorrow about how working in retirement is being embraced by older adults and companies. My colleague, Market Watch retirement editor Angela Moore, will speak with Richard Eisenberg, contributor to Market Watch's Best New Ideas in Retirement, a new package of which has just been released and will be continued to be released over the coming, coming days. And they're going to discuss the very tight labor market and how Zoom is helping baby boomers work the way they want to work. Uh, thank you for listening. Stay healthy and please stay safe and have a wonderful rest of the day. The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.